Hello and welcome back to the Make It Same podcast, the podcast breaking the stigma of allergies, but also just inspiring individuals who are making a difference within their field. I feel like this is my biggest season yet. I've been doing the podcast for a while now, but I'm so excited with all the exciting guests I've got lined up over the next coming weeks. And if you are new to the Make It Same podcast, make sure to click that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future episodes, which are out every Monday morning. And this episode is also going to be available on YouTube every week. On this week's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Professor Adam Fox. And it's great to have a doctor on the podcast. I've never had a doctor on the podcast before. So it's great to really kind of hear Adam's thoughts and kind of opinions in regards to allergy anxiety, his studies and research between the link between expert and allergies. But we also kind of touched upon allergy testing and what is the gold standard. And then we kind of finally kind of spoke about desensitization, the research and the studies, what they're doing now and kind of the breakthrough, which is incredible. And he got so excited talking about this and really exciting to kind of hear his thoughts on what the future holds for this. Just before I jump into the podcast, I'm so excited to announce that I partnered up with Good It's Gluten Free on the Making Same podcast. So they do like free from wraps and meal kits like Houston wraps, fajitas, tandoori tikka, katsu curry, which is completely free from tree nuts, peanuts, gluten, milk, egg and sesame. And for example, I don't think I've ever tried katsu curry, so I can't wait to try that one out soon. And like not many brands can actually say they're completely allergy free and it's safe. So yeah, it's great to have them on board of the podcast. And like I spoke with Andrew, the founder, a few weeks back, and his journey in Surrey is so interesting of what he has had to overcome. So it'd be great to get him on the podcast at some point. But yeah, if you want to give Good It's Gluten Free a try, it's available to buy it as a, but I'll also leave a link in my bio as well if you want to check it out. And it's been a while since I said this, but grab yourself a cup of tea and let's jump straight into the podcast. Thank you so much for kind of coming on the podcast today. Yeah, I really pre- kind of appreciate it. I really want to kind of find out, obviously, so yeah, Professor Adam Fox, I really want to talk about, obviously, you kind of studied at Cambridge University, kind of doing like kind of neuroscience and medicine. What made you kind of want to then jump into pediatric allergies? Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me along. You're, you're taking me back to a lifetime ago. Oh, really? And these sorts of decisions. Um, so originally, I, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I knew I wanted to be a pediatrician. I trained as a pediatrician. Um, and you only have to make the decision about subspecializing within pediatrics once you've, once you've already started your training. So I would have been mid-20s, um, already done about a year or so of general pediatrics at, at middle grade. So it's um, pretty hard going. This is the olden days when um, people don't talk about this too much anymore. But junior de- doctor's hours were absolutely insane in those days. I used to go to work on a Friday um, in the morning. You'd leave on Monday. It's like no weekends um, off. It was, just no, like, you know, on, it was, yeah. it, it was the, the rates were horrible. There was so f- so many fewer doctors then covering sort of the hospitals out of hours than there were now. Um, and we weren't doing shift patterns. You would go to the hospital, you'd stay overnight. Um, and I think there was a point where I was really wondering whether this was the life I wanted for myself as a general paediatrician, because that's what that would look like all the way up, you know, at my age now, I'm in my 50s, even now, um, I'd still be covering the hospital overnight, etc. So I wanted to go into a, a, a more specialist area where um, I could really make more of a difference. And in fact, what I was seeing really clearly with my patients at the time is, especially I worked, I did one job at the Royal Free Hospital in North London. And what I found is that when there were kids with allergies, I was seeing them in the general paediatrics 
pediatric clinic, referring them off because they had, for example, issues with um, with severe eczema or problems with um, tummy issues, referring them off to the gastro clinic or to the dermatology clinic. And I was also sort of involved with um, supporting those clinics as well. So I've seen these kids again in different places and sometimes found myself referring them to myself in a different clinic. And, and it became very clear that kids with multiple allergic disease, and there was lots of them, did not have a natural home. There was nowhere that they were being holistically looked after. And then I discovered that there were places for um, children with severe allergic disease, allergy clinics, but only a tiny, tiny very number few of them. them. How many in the UK? Well, at, at, the, at that point, there was only a couple. I mean, there was just next to nothing. What's been fantastic to, to sort of watch as I've, as I've been in the specialty now for the best part of 20 years is there's not really a district general in the hospital that doesn't have an allergy clinic now. So there's been a, a real sea change in paediatrics, particularly of the way that kids with, with, with allergies are looked after. It's much better than it was. I think it's still got a way to go, but it's in a dramatically better place. And, and seeing how think different aspects of care could be pulled together and so much more value from seeing a child with all their different issues together in one place it was an area I was really interested in and it had lots of other things that were very appealing. Um, there was the sense that you could make a real difference to your patients. There's some areas of medicine that even now you can you can support people, but you can't really treat them. And for me, that really wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to do, do something where I could I could actively do stuff to make my patients better. Um, and, and this was an area where, where I felt I was, I was making a difference. And it was a very small specialty, which meant that you could sort of be quite involved in lots of things very quickly because there weren't that many of you. And that was quite appealing as well. So I had the opportunity to get involved in research, in education, um, in, in clinical trials, in all sorts of different it things quite quickly. Developed so much from when you started to kind of where it is now. Is it been a massive shift I can imagine over the last kind of 10-15 years or has it only been like the last five years or what, what's your kind of I, I think because it happens quite slowly sometimes you think oh maybe things aren't that different but then I think back to what we were able to offer in the way that we used to do things when I started in allergy in 2006 it is a world away um, and you know, it, it, it's you know the, the the treatments we can offer, the effectiveness of the treatments, what we know, the evidence base around treatments is phenomenally better. So yeah, I mean the whole thing has been continually moving. There's never been a sense, and I think this is why in my mind I'm, I made a good career decision, um, is because there's never been a sense that things are standing still. There is always stuff going on, and there is always stuff on the horizon coming that you know is going to change things. Yeah, and I really want to kind of ask you between the link between food al- allergies and eczema. I remember I had my mum on the podcast a few years ago and she said oh as a kid I I suffered really badly with it I don't really kind of remember this and she said oh it's very kind of heavily linked and I remember at the time I was like what eczema and food allergies and it wasn't until I've had other guests kind of on the podcast and we've kind of spoke about it but then you search online there's a lot of people saying it's factual or it's it's not linked like could we talk from kind of your experience and kind of the, the studies you've done on that yeah i mean it, it, in fact this has been a, a very central part to my own journey um sort of clinically and and research wise when i started um it was really i mean to be honest you know you only need to come to an allergy clinic to for it to be really obvious there is a link because if you look at children who have food allergy the majority of them would have had eczema in infancy and you get a very skewed view of life in the allergy clinic you'd think pretty much all babies get eczema because all the ba- almost all the babies i see in my clinic have eczema um what was happening in australia was really interesting there was a guy called david hill very eminent researcher in melbourne and he did a series of studies that really cemented the relationship between the presence of eczema 
the severity of eczema and how early it started in the presence of food allergy. So essentially within his own clinics, he was able to show that the earlier your eczema started and the worse your eczema was, the more likely you were to have a food allergy. But that was an association. What I think was really fascinating is, was this just sort of a coincidence or was there a causal relationship between the two? Now, I think when we think about causal relationships, the first thing most people will jump to is, well, obviously, food allergy is causing eczema in these kids. But then if you watch the um, the way these kids grow up, it's pretty clear that's not the case because their eczema starts from very early on and their food allergies only develop later on in infancy. So I think the, the suggestion was, is, is it possible that having eczema was the reason why you developed food allergy rather than it just being a sort of reflection that, well, you're an allergic kid, so you've got eczema, and it's allergic kids that then get food allergies. And really the subject of my, my, my own research, what turned out to be the, the thesis I did for my doctorate, was very much focused on this because the suggestion was, and this came from, from Gideon Lack, who was the professor who um, I trained under, he'd already done a really important study that had shown that if you looked at children as they grew up who had eczema when they were little and looked at what they were treated with, that seemed to relate to their likelihood of developing specifically peanut allergy. And what you've essentially showed, and this was from a, a large, what's called a birth cohort study, so essentially following thousands of children in the Bristol area to see how they developed different things over different times, and showed that if you followed up the kids who had eczema when they were very little, who were treated with eczema creams that contained peanut oil, they were dramatically more likely than other kids to develop peanut allergy. So the implication was, is that if you get a baby with eczema and rub peanut oil essentially into their skin, they then go on to develop peanut allergy. Now, that rightly caused a, a lot of concern, and the peanut oil disappeared from all the eczema creams. Of course it did. I mean, you know, it was an obvious risk factor. But we didn't see a big drop in peanut allergy. But then, of course, the suggestion was is that, well, eczema creams aren't the only place that an infant with eczema might come across peanut allergen. What about older siblings in a household eating peanut butter sandwiches and then kissing and touching the baby with eczema. So that led to the research that I ended up doing under the supervision of Gideon. And, and what we did is we got hundreds of kids who had egg allergy and eczema. Now, we know that egg allergy is a big risk factor for going on and developing peanut allergy. About 20 or 30% of egg allergic kids get peanut allergy afterwards. And pretty much all the egg allergic kids have eczema when they're little. So you have to, you know, have to look quite hard to find the egg allergic babies who don't have eczema. So we got this really high-risk group of kids and we really got very busy with what was going on in their household in terms of who was eating peanut, what sort of things they were eating and what the contact with the child was. The idea being is that we hope to demonstrate that if you had eczema and egg allergy and you lived in a household where other people were eating peanut containing foods, particularly peanut butter, it's sticky, and then obviously they had lots of contact with the baby afterwards, were those kids more likely to develop a peanut allergy than kids who had eczema and egg allergy but lived in households where nobody was really eating peanut butter because they just didn't eat those sorts of things. And the relationship was well, it couldn't have been clearer. So it there could was, have been more obvious. Obviously, the it was really the straightforward. Yeah. There was literally a straight line on the graph, a relationship between <clears throat> if you had more people in your household eating more peanut, particularly peanut butter, the higher the likelihood that you ended up 
with um, with peanut allergy. And there's been now a load of studies, and we we actually did a load of immunological work as well, doing um, lots of blood tests and things on these sorts of, on kids like this, and demonstrated really clearly this idea that the way that kids were becoming allergic to peanuts was not as previously had been suspected, which was their mums eating it when they were pregnant or mums eating it when they were breastfeeding. It was actually from the skin contact particularly in kids who had eczema and it was more pronounced when you always think bad it's eczema. in the pregnancy don't yeah, you yeah that's right and you but, hear a lot of kind of even my mum was like whenever i do on the podcast she's like oh i remember like eating quite a lot of nuts Could that so, the well that, yeah. it's 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 a sort of you know it's it's a timeless maternal characteristic that mums will find a way of blaming themselves yeah, yeah. so <laughs> so so it'll be oh i ate too many peanuts in pregnancy i didn't eat enough peanuts in pregnancy in fact it just doesn't relate to that at all what it relates to is the infant environment. And we know that when babies are born, they are not allergic. They do not have food allergies at that point. We know that because you can take blood from cord blood when they come out to look for antibodies to food and you won't find any. It develops during early infancy. And what we now know is that the worse your eczema is, the earlier it starts, the more sensitive you are to this effect. But um, <clears throat> the, um, the, the big risk factor for peanut allergy in particular is that exposure through the skin. But where we, you know, where this really got exciting is, and this is often the way in research studies, is you look at the small subgroup of your patients who don't obey the rules that you think you've just found. Because whilst we found this really clear relationship between the amount of exposure to peanut during early infancy and the presence of eczema and then the development of peanut allergy, there was a small number of babies who sort of clearly hadn't read the book. They didn't know the rules because they were being exposed to an enormous amount of peanut in their household. They had really bad eczema but they weren't developing peanut allergy. And they were the ones that we looked at a little bit further. And that's where we started asking lots of questions of these families about not just what's dad eating, what's the siblings eating, what's the mum eating, etc. But are you actually giving peanut to the baby? Because what we found is that these kids that didn't obey the rules, they were the ones who as an early weaning food from four, five, six months of age had had peanut introduced directly into their diet. And there was a suggestion there that there might be a protective effect that allowed you to bypass this high risk of being exposed to peanut through the skin if you actually just got on and ate it yourself. And that then led to um, what was called the, the dual allergen hypothesis. So this idea that you could tolerize or sort of prevent allergy by exposing infants, even if they had very high risks, even if they had egg allergy and lots of eczema, by getting them to eat the food rather than not eating the food and then letting them see it for the first time through their immune system, through the skin, rather than through the gut. And of course, that sort of makes sense because the gut immune system knows that what it's seeing is food and should be ignored, whereas the skin immune system isn't designed to see food. It only sees it when the skin barrier isn't working because you've got eczema, so your skin barrier is leaky, and then your skin immune system is seeing things which it thinks must be something to worry about because it only normally sees bugs and germs and bacteria and things. But when it's seeing food, it might, if it doesn't know that that's a food protein because it's never seen it in the gut, make a bad decision and think, oh, this is something we need to worry about and develop an inappropriate allergic response to it and this essentially is where the whole idea between behind the leap study came in which is the idea of saying right let's get these really high risk kids that have got eczema and egg allergy and a really high risk for getting peanut allergy but let's get half of them and deliberately introduce peanuts as a weaning food very early in infancy at four to six months and that study showed very clearly that in that high-risk population, you could massively reduce the risk of peanut allergy developing by that, by that early, early introduction yeah. and consequently a change in public health yeah. guidelines globally. What's the chances then of, of kids with these, if they get diagnosed with an allergy when they're very young, what's the kind of the 
chance of them actually outgrowing it because i remember when i got diagnosed with severe peanut allergy at the age of five they said well if you still got it at 18 you're probably gonna have it for the rest of your life um what's the chances are the percentage of kids actually outgrowing their allergies so through a series of studies we've got a much better understanding of what we call the natural history of of different allergies and what's really clear is that your question needs to be more specific in as much as what my chances of outgrowing my milk allergy is a very different answer to one of my chances of outgrowing my peanut allergy or my sesame allergy because it very much is allergen dependent. So if you've got a peanut allergy, you've got about a 20% chance, a one in five chance of outgrowing it, but usually by the age of four or five. And if you've not outgrown it by the time you're four or five, it would be very unusual to then outgrow it. Now, if the same question was about tree nuts, it's probably about one in 10. Sesame, it's about a third of them outgrow it. Milk and egg most of the kids outgrow it. And broadly with milk and egg, you divide the patients into two groups. There's large a large group, 80% of them, where they tend to outgrow it by the time they're about four or five. But then you get an unluckier sort of 20% where they have a more um, persistent type of milk allergy or egg allergy. It relates to which part of the egg white or the milk they're allergic to, and they're more likely to be persistent and still be allergic into teenage years and even a small number, but into adulthood. You always f- you find that obviously online with, with if there is a, a tragedy and there is an allergy death, it's always surrounding nuts. Why is it never really surrounding eggs? I'm sure it happens, but you don't really hear it as much as uh, a nut allergy. Yeah. So, so interestingly, I mean, I often say to patients because, of course, the risk of fatal anaphylaxis, it, it creates an enormous amount of anxiety, understandably. Thankfully, it's really, really, really rare. And as it happens, most cases these days, I think since Natasha Laparuse's death and and the fantastic work her parents have done sort of raised the profile of allergy and, and the risk of fatal anaphylaxis, actually, I think most of the deaths do make it to the newspapers in some level. So there's always that risk that patients are thinking, oh, goodness, this is the tip of the iceberg I'm seeing, when actually they're probably seeing most of the iceberg. And that, and that risk of fatal anaphylaxis is small and interestingly, no more than it was 20 years ago, we're not seeing an increase in fatal anaphylaxis. I think most people would guess that it's, it's rising exponentially. It's on the rise, yeah. Exactly. It feels it's, like it's, that. It's I think not. with social media and constantly yeah. in the news, and I remember when I kind of spoke to you on the phone a few weeks back before I did the talk, was everybody feels in this epidemic now where all these allergy deaths are happening weekly when they're not at the rate, so they're kind of same no, as it was. No, they're not. Yeah. I think what, what, what is increasing dramatically over the last sort of number of 20 years or so is the number of severe allergic reactions that are showing up in emergency departments. And so that's actually gone up sort of 5 or 6% every year. So over the course of 20 years, that's a really, really big, that's a three or a fourfold increase. So that's really gone up markedly, but thankfully the, the, the number of deaths hasn't. Now, sort of, you know, slightly strangely, if you think about that, that means that actually your risk of dying from an anaphylaxis episode seems to be going down because there's more anaphylaxis more people, happening, yeah. but the same number of deaths. So maybe we're getting a little bit better at recognising it, at treating it earlier. There's more EpiPen around um, adrenaline in the community which is great because that 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 means early treatment but just go back to your your question about why is it always nuts it's not um actually if you look at the statistics from the uk the most common cause of fatal or severe reactions in younger children is milk and um you know that that you know there's a real risk that that's not taken seriously enough and everybody thinks well you know if you're not allergic to nuts it can't be that bad yeah um amongst Older children, sort of teenagers, young adults, and and it's teenagers and young adults that bear the brunt, really, of fatal reactions. It's Is that because the responsibility wears when they move move away from home, for example, they take on that responsibility themselves? Because obviously they've got the, the family, yeah. they've got the parents kind of looking out for them. Yeah. them. 
Um, I think the short answer is, is, is no, I don't think it is that. I think traditionally we used to think that. So teenagers used to get a bit of a bad reputation for sort of, you know, well, it's because they're not paying enough attention and it's because they're not as careful and because they have a few drinks and go out and then eat what they shouldn't, etc. But actually, no, the main reason is that their immune systems are at the peak of their powers. So in the same way as that your, you know, your immune system is also at its best in terms of protecting you against stuff, it also has the capacity to mount the most severe reactions in a way that small children aren't able to, which is why you're much less likely to see, you know, not never, but you're much less likely to see a severe or fatal reaction in a younger child. Their immune systems just don't have the oomph that a teenager's immune system has got. So I think the key reason, and then then as you get older, your immune system loses its vigour a little bit. So so you're always going to get the peak of these things happening then. Yes, there's probably a contribution of lifestyle factors as well, but that's not the reason why you see more of it. No, but amongst that group, nuts are the most common um, cause of anaphylaxis, but there's other important ones, fish, shellfish, etc. Um, and still in the people that are allergic to milk and egg, milk and egg, um, and a range of other sort of things that are less common. Um, the question I'm commonly asked is, well, you know, what is it about nuts that makes them so likely to cause such severe reactions? And essentially, it's something about their protein structure that makes them very hard for your digestive system to break down, which means that once you've eaten it, it's still there causing trouble the whole way down your, 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 your gut. Whereas for lots of things, you know, if you've got an allergy to something where, um, I mean, the obvious example is a different type of nut allergy when you're allergic to nuts because of cross-reactivity with pollen. So some people find that when they eat raw hazelnuts, they get a tingle in their mouth. But the bit that's causing the reaction there is very unstable. It breaks down really easily. It's very easily digested in your system. So it won't keep causing a reaction as it gets, as it gets you know, absorbed. Whereas the storage proteins in nuts, the bits that, you know, mean that squirrels can eat a nut and poo it out the other side and it can still grow. Um, they're the bits that are incredibly resistant to being broken down and they cause the more severe reactions. I really want to kind of speak about when kind of going through school, I was the only kid in my school with an allergy, but it just seems like it's so common now. What is the reason behind more people having allergies now than ever? Is it kind of the Western lifestyle? Is it environmental changes? Like, What's kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I, I often use the analogy of my of my own school experience. I I remember at school, and this is you know I'm going back to the 1980s here. There was one kid in my school, and there was what 1,500 kids in the school. One kid with a peanut allergy, and everybody knew about it because it was such a bizarre thing. Um, my son went to the same school as I did. We lived in the same area, and 30 he was 30 years below me. Um, I think out of his class of 24, I knew about five of them professionally with food allergies. I mean, there was just such a stark difference in one generation in the amount that we were seeing. Some of that is because there does seem to have been a genuine increase, particularly around nut allergies, particularly around the 2000s, quite a marked increase. There were some fabulous studies done in, on the Isle of Wight. There's a, um, a really, really world-class research centre called the David Hyde Centre on the Isle of Wight, where they keep a very close eye on the local population. And the Isle of Wight's a great population to do allergy studies on because it's not a mobile population. If you try to do a study in London looking at the prevalence of food allergy over time, you're looking at a completely different group of people from one day decade to the next because people move out and lots of different people move in. The Isle of Wight are quite a static population. So it's a really good place to keep a close eye on what the rates are. And it's a defined population, you know, it's an island. And what they're able to show is that over the 
2000s, that decade, there was a threefold increase in positive skin tests among small children to, to, to peanuts. And although um, that's not quite the same as saying peanut allergy, it's not far off it. And when they, you know, when they, when they did very, very detailed studies of presence of allergies in amongst the kids on the island, there was a very clear big upsurge, which seems to reflect what was going on in, in the wider UK, Australia, US, etc. But not really beyond that. So I think there's this, still this little bit of an urban myth that we're in the midst of this increasing allergy epidemic and there's more food allergy now than there was two years ago and five years ago. And actually, that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is a previous big increase that now seems to have plateaued a little bit, but increased awareness and increased recognition that if you had a reaction to a food, get it sorted out, go and get a diagnosis, get an allergy test, work out what it is, because then your child is safer that way. Whereas I think in the past, there'd have been a little bit, oh, my child felt really unwell after they ate peanuts, so we just don't eat peanuts and don't tell anyone else about that and steer clear. Um, so there's, so it's quite hard to sort of pin down what changes are really happening. But I think we're pretty clear that we're not seeing more food allergy now than a few years ago. But recognition is getting better we're getting better at diagnosing we now have treatments to offer which of course is a big step change and public awareness has got dramatically better over the last few years which is great and i mean you know i, I you know i still love it when i'm in a restaurant and they're asking me you know i don't have any allergies myself but it's great when i'm asked and you think you know finally this message is getting through which is really good news still a way to go but you know in yeah it's getting there so you know it, I feel like, yeah. when, when you hear you know it's yeah. funny actually i mean it's like so many other things yeah. in, in in life when you hear people sort of moaning a little bit you sort of think god if you only knew what it used to be like yeah um how much better things are yeah i've seen like a massive shift i think more so like the last kind of like five years like when eating out in restaurants now everybody seems a bit more aware or they kind of start that dialogue first which is always good to hear or they've got the allergy menu i think they've got dying palate now where you can like list the food of all the different allergies i kind of really want to ask about obviously what is the gold standard of allergy testing obviously you've got your skin print test but then some people say you need to do a diary as well what do you see as kind of the gold standard of allergy testing? So lots of different ways of testing for allergies. If we're talking about the sort of classic immediate type allergies, you've got blood tests, we've got skin prick tests. Both definitely have their place. Um, people often say, well, which one's better? And my view is, well, one isn't better than the other. They have their pros and cons. I like skin prick tests because of the immediacy of the results. Um, uh, blood tests are really helpful though because sometimes you can get a little bit more detail in there because we can do more sophisticated testing now to look for different bits of the same food that can tell us useful information about allergies. But for me, the gold standard is having your test done and interpreted in the context of a clinical history by somebody that knows what they're doing. Because where things tend to go wrong is when people just go off on their own and get a blood test off the internet and they don't really know what to do with that because frustratingly, Allergy tests just aren't as straightforward as you'd like them to be. You want a test that comes back and says, yes, you're allergic to this. No, you're not allergic to that. And it's a yes, no outcome. And it gives you absolute clarity. That's not what you get from either skin tests or blood tests. It's as sadly as simple as that. I think if, it, if you did, you probably wouldn't need allergy doctors. Um, what you get back is um, a, a value, a number, a size of a, of a wheel that comes up on a skin test or a number on a blood test that you then have to relate to the clinical history to then make a, 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 a sort of interpretation as to what that's trying to tell you. 
Now, very broadly speaking, the higher the number on the test or the bigger the bump on the skin test, the more likely you are to be allergic. But there's not a magic number that just says, that's it, you're allergic. You've got to take that together. Because if somebody comes in and says, um, well, I eat a peanut butter sandwich every day and I'm absolutely fine, it doesn't really matter how high the number is on the blood test or the skin test. And some of them, if you were to do the test, which would be a pointless exercise, they do come up with high numbers on the test. It doesn't mean they're allergic because the proof is in the in, in eating the pudding you, you if you, if you eat the food and nothing happens you're not allergic to it whereas somebody comes in and every time they eat egg they immediately come out in hives and swelling and, and itchiness it doesn't matter whether the test is negative that person is clearly allergic and sometimes with that story the test will be negative so it's got to be a combination of all of those things together to get a diagnosis about two years ago now i did a post about the ige and it was more to do the indication because i already know i've got a, a severe nut allergy as an indication if anything else kind of comes up um that post at the time got a bit of backlash which is a great it educated me because obviously i've not had an allergy test since i was 18 and i, I did this and it, it did get a bit of a backlash and i was very open to to, to my mistake and was like oh well i wasn't aware of kind of what the gold kind of standard is with these and i think a lot of people are the the, the opposite side to this is that obviously i did see it as indication but a lot of people kind of use these tests if they can't get appointments do you think that's quite quite, yeah, quite, quite scary is, yeah. or is that this yeah. is enormously frustrating because um what, what one of the you know, and I mean, this has been an ongoing challenge with it within an NHS um, allergy services. We cannot, you know, there's just not the capacity we want to look after our patients in the way that we'd like to, and that's just a reality of life. If if you're not able to get what you need from from the allergy clinic, people will rightly go off and find somewhere else to get it from. And frustratingly, the obvious and easiest place is to go online and get a get a blood test or a skin test, organised somewhere else. And some of those tests are just not scientifically validated, so they're going to come back with numbers that just don't mean anything. But you can get an IgE test done. You know, you can get you can get those online. And so the tests sort of have validity, but you've still got to know how to interpret that test. And it's not reasonable to expect somebody who doesn't have any sort of training. It's, you, know, it's, you know, we see this with doctors who have got a little bit of training. So doctors who work in sort of this space but don't do this a lot who will often get things a little bit wrong because they're not used to dealing with it. It's easy for me to sort of, you know, say, well, you know, you've got that wrong. I literally do nothing else all day, every day. So inevitably you're going to get a little bit better at the nuance of interpreting those tests. And there is a fair amount of nuance to it. And a lot of that nuance is not in the way that you even look at the numbers. It's the questions you've asked the patient to better understand whether they're genuinely allergic or not. So to try and do that with essentially sort of one eye closed and one arm behind your back, which is what you're doing if you're just doing a, a blood test off the internet, you're going to inevitably come up with some wonky results that are going to be unhelpful in two senses. They might either mean you've overdiagnosed yourself with allergies you don't have, which is not helpful in terms of day-to-day life, or I guess potentially worse still, you've inappropriately not diagnosed with something you are allergic to and can then come unstuck when you think you're safe to eat things that you're not. Yeah. You know, I completely get that. I think, for, yeah, for me at the time, it was a bit like, well, if something comes up I'm, I'm not aware of, then I can definitely kind of then go and kind of see the doctor. What is the kind of the, the first port of call? Obviously, it'd be try and get the help from your doctor to kind of get these analogy tests or... Because yeah. is, is a more private clinic 
kind of well, popping I'll up t- now t- as t- well. You know yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that there are. I don't know. I mean, there's there's only so many allergy doctors. I mean, certainly privately, there's. You know, I mean, I, I see this a fair bit. There's people who don't necessarily have a specific expertise, recognizing that there's not great provision in 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 terms of allergy. You see this in other areas where the NHS provision isn't great. The sort of other people will pop up trying to take the place of that, and I think that. You know, there's a real risk there because I think you really need to question, you know, what are these, you know, what are these people's qualifications? Do they have uh, a proper scientific training um, and the right experience? And sometimes you really have to read between the lines of the of the, of the biographies to sort of clarify, clarify that. Um, I would always say have a good look at where they work on the NHS. I think that's your probably your most reliable marker because there's there's sort of no hiding place in terms of that. You know, if you're a consultant gastroenterologist at, a, at a, an NHS hospital you clearly know a fair bit about gastroenterology and, and likewise for any specialty um, there are people who will work exclusively privately and they might be really really good but I think I'd be really careful about checking out their their credentials first I mean what we know is that there is a there's quite a large sort of complementary and alternative provision provision in this area and and I've got a little bit of an issue with that especially when it comes to um, sort of the more classic and potentially dangerous food allergies. There are some awful stories of where people have got it horribly wrong because they've been seeing people who really don't have the expertise, who themselves as as clinicians don't get the difference between allergies and intolerances or the potential severity. And some of these stories have really not ended very well when they've been given very bad advice and bad diagnostics have been done. And sadly, there are some very bad diagnostics out there. There are completely unvalidated tests that are wrapped up in pseudoscience that give the impression that they have scientific validity that you can very easily get online. And they're really unhelpful. I really want to ask, like, what was the difference between kind of the US and the UK? I know when we spoke on the phone, you kind of talk about Mount Sinai and obviously kind of the research you've done with them. What is kind of the difference in practices in in the US and the UK? Wow, that's a big question. Um, It's a very different healthcare system over there to here. Um, And those sorts of basics of the healthcare system and the way that care is provided inevitably have quite a big impact on the way that every specialty is different allergies you know exception um, I think we all know the generally that if, if you're in the right place in the US the healthcare system is quite dramatically better resourced than it is here and as a consequence the level of care can be really really good that's a double-edged sword on the positive side for example you know one of the you know if you're if you're a sort of our I work at St Thomas's here in London our equivalent service the uh, service we work very closely with Mount Sinai in New York so we know lots about what they do you know, every kid going through that service is offered um, support by a psychologist, which is something we would love to be able to do, but we only have the resource to offer that to a small number of patients within our own service. Um, so those things much, much better, which is great. But then one of the downsides of the American healthcare system is a tendency to over-investigate, over-test, and just do everything you can to everybody. And I, I'm sadly, I think, you know, where that, you know, being a bit cynical here, but I think most people would recognize where that comes from is the healthcare system generates its income by the more stuff it does and hence it's incentivized to do more tests um, and we see this in other parts of the world it's not a uniquely american thing at all the nhs again almost uniquely disincentivizes any sort of investigation or patient contact so we have this funny situation in the uk where with our own clinics we're sort of um, under pressure from the hospital to see our patients as little as possible whereas your average american doctor is under pressure from his hospital to see his patients as often as possible and that will inevitably then sort of you know come out in sort of the way that things are done um 
as I said, there's plenty of other areas of medicine where where, where the same thing happens. Um, I think America has probably always been a little bit ahead in terms of sort of allergy awareness and and, and things like that. But um, we're doing a pretty good job now on that. But I think the other area where things have started to diverge a little bit is around treatments for food allergy and things like food desensitization. So this is something that's not new. It's been around for a little bit now, but just because of the structure of the healthcare system, I think it was easier for it to get traction um, in the US again, because if there is something useful you can do, then the resource will follow that. Whereas in, in the UK, it's sort of the other way around in as much as it's harder to introduce new treatments because it requires resource, yet those treatments aren't generating income in any way. You've still got the same number of patients and the same amount of money from the government through the NHS in order to manage their allergies. So it's been a much harder journey to try and get that, that introduced. I mean, we're, we're starting to see that emerge. And I've um, seen it online as well with, with people. I think it's private, but people obviously doing the desensitization, but obviously people wait in the teens. So I, I think a girl on TikTok got millions of views because like she was showing the whole process and she was like, 29 years old and now she can eat peanuts and stuff and she kind of shared that but um yeah it's really interesting obviously because obviously you see it now i think it was two christmases ago the kind of bbc news kind of did a whole article on it with with children and obviously being able to eat nuts and now i know that we kind of spoke on the phone and you're saying the trial was only aimed at kind of initially it was everyone but then they kind of specialized more into children yes i mean this this is sort of a really important sort of moment um, for our specialty when we had the first licensing of a oral food desensitization product. So um, the history of this is, is quite quite a long one. Um, if you go back to sort of the, the, the mid-2000s, Cambridge, um, Adam Brooks Hospital, um, alongside other centres in, in the US, were working on this proof of principle to try and show that if you gave children with peanut allergies small but increasing amounts of peanut you can make them less sensitive to it and just to be clear it's not a cure it doesn't mean they're not allergic when they've tr been treated it just means that they can have an amount of peanut without having a reaction which can still make an enormous difference to their quality of life in terms of the anxiety they were feeling about the risk of a small amount of peanut causing a catastrophic reaction now after they sort of published that so about 2009 the first publications were coming out showing that that was possible then you start to see in the development of these sort of more ambitious and larger scale research programs with a view to sort of doing something that could then be rolled out and fair which is the um sort of one of the american patient food allergy charities they actually developed a, a what turned into a company that was then spun out and and bought by nestle of all people um called a immune who developed a a a, a Cap capsules of peanut protein that contained extremely accurately measured amounts of peanut protein that would then be given according to a very, very specific protocol over the course of a number of months to people with peanut allergy. Um, and this was done as sort of a large multi-sensor study across the US and, and, and beyond. Um, we were one of the centers at St. Thomas's. And that was aimed at sort of establishing the safety, the effectiveness, but then with the, with the intention of getting a license for this product. Now, the frustration here is it's peanut. There's no medicine in, in these capsules. It's not a drug. It's peanut. But the danger is, is that once you sort of package it and market it as a drug, it, it's then billed as a drug. Um, and that suddenly starts making this a very expensive treatment. Now, you know, that said, there is an enormous cost to doing the research in order to establish safety and efficacy. So that has to come from somewhere. So, I mean, you know, can't be naive to the fact that, you know, these things cost. But 
the the outcome of this is that we now have a product which two years ago got licensed in the US in October of last year, so 14 months ago, it got licensed in in the UK. It got um, its approval from Nice in the UK earlier in in, in February of, of of this year, which meant that NHS Trust should now be offering this, but. Whilst that's really positive, because essentially it's sort of it's that watershed moment of saying, okay, we now have a treatment for peanut allergy that's you know that's fully licensed and approved by all the all the you know the great and the good, yeah. fantastic. But it's very onerous to deliver that for an NHS hospital where there's an enormous amount of pressure on staffing, on space, resources, etc. This is not a simple treatment. Um, it requires a lot of visits. So you're not going to be able to get huge numbers of people through without having an enormous impact on the rest of the service. And it's got a cost attached. And this is still aimed at kind of children because it's multi-effective. So this is licensed from 4 to 17. And that's because in the original studies, the effect was not as good in older people. So they sort of seem to have fallen out of the trial and then it got focused on on adolescents and, and and older children. The reason they didn't go younger than four in the first instance is we know that there are, there's a chance of kids naturally outgrowing their, their food allergy, their, their peanut allergy. But that said, they've now gone on to develop the same product for ages one to three, which they've recently published the results showing that you get a similar effect and that you can effectively desensitize older kids, younger kids as well with palforsia. But in the meantime, alongside this, what's happened across the US, what's certainly you know happening within my own clinics is that we're able to get a broadly similar effect by desensitizing with peanuts, which takes an enormous amount of cost out of it. And there's now plenty of studies demonstrating that you can get a really, really good effect. You can do this safely, particularly in younger children. And if you look at the research, the wind is very much blowing towards desensitizing younger because it appears to be safer, more practical. Um, the logistics are much easier. The outcomes are better. Um, and But it'd be quite dangerous for someone like myself. I'm turning 30 in December. Say next year I wanted to go private to do desensitization. Is yeah. that dangerous for me at my age? So I mean, it's a great question to get asked a lot because as a pediatric allergist, I'm easy. You know, I can fob everyone. I was like, "You're too old for me." Um, there's there's a lot of interest in desensitizing older people. Um, I think the one thing to be absolutely clear about is this is not a treatment to be taken lightly. This is dangerous in the wrong hands. It needs to be done under very careful medical supervision. Um, I'm not aware of anybody who's offering that treatment outside of a research setting for somebody of your age. But there, is, there are definitely studies going on that include people that are older than 17, not a lot older than 17, but that go up a little bit older um, that are looking into this. So um, I think there's, you know, if, if you're with somebody that really knows what they're doing and, and you trust them, and as I said, it's likely to be part of a research study, there's potential. And I think if, if we sort of, you know, look at where things are going, um, whilst the research focus and certainly the treatment focus for paediatricians pediat- is going to be on desensitizing younger kids and getting them as early as possible and intervening then, there's still this enormous cohort of people who have missed that boat and they still, you know, warrant treatment. Um, there's going to be other approaches that are likely to be more effective. So there's a lot of interest in what's called sublingual immunotherapy. So this is a different way of desensitizing that seems to have a much better safety profile um, there's a lot of interest in what's called epicutaneous desensitization so this is where um, you have a little patch of the thing that you're allergic to that you put on so again safer less side effects less risk of nasty reactions to the treatment but probably less of an effect so it might not be as worthwhile doing it but there's also a lot of interest in what are called biologics so these are medicines that you could inject that reduce your 
responsiveness to reactions, so you're less likely to have a reaction. And while you're under the influence of that medication, it might be more practical to then desensitize you using oral exposure because you're not going to have as much reaction to it. So there's a load of stuff going on, a load of interest in this. You know, this is now, you know, there are research groups around the world looking at this, which is fantastic to know that there's a real sort of, you know, things are happening. It's, you know, I mean, I, I can understand the frustration of people who in 2009 saw the front page headlines saying cure for peanut allergy two years away you know and of course you know 12 years later finally this product that isn't a cure get its like gets its license so um you know things don't move that fast but they are definitely moving and there's a load of different angles so i often say to my patients i think the likelihood of you know them as the you know the six-year-old with a food allergy getting to my age and still having to avoid all these things in my mind, it's probably quite unlikely that they will be. I'm not sure what the means by which they won't need to avoid it will be. Will it be a medicine they take regularly to dampen their reactions down? Will they have gone through a process of desensitization that you know somebody's eventually found the way to make it as safe and as effective as possible? I don't know, but I, th I think there's so many research angles and so many that are showing promise that it's very likely that we're going to continue on. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, it's, it's wonderful to know that, you know, when we started this, it was basically, I can tell you what you're allergic to, but you're just going to have to avoid it and cross our fingers that it gets better to now being part of this journey where we're actually able to offer safe and sensible treatments that make people's quality of life better. Yeah. I really also ask in regards to kind of allergies and anxiety. Um, this week, I first time in 29 years administered the EpiPen. Um, I ate some at the time. I didn't realize it had the, the kind of the may contain on it. I ate it, but then I wasn't too sure whether I was having a bit of a panic attack because then I realized it about the cross-contamination risk. Um, for me, it felt like my neck was, was swelling up. So obviously I didn't take any risk and uh, I got the EpiPen straight away. I already had an antihistamine in my body earlier on in the day because... Um, it sounds, it doesn't sound silly, but I, I use a mouthwash not knowing that my girlfriend's sister and boyfriend had eaten nuts and I used to say mouthwash because I forgot my toothbrush or whatever when I went to my girlfriend's place. So I was already a bit panicky anyway in the day, so I did take me antihistamine. Obviously, I've had this meal. Potentially, it could have contained nuts. It felt like I, I couldn't breathe. And like I said, I've never had to use the EpiPen, but in that moment, I administered the EpiPen. Um... By the time the ambulance arrived, like I felt a lot better. Like obviously, they still went back and they did took my heart rate and my blood and and cross checked everything, and I was okay. Um, but it's really hard in that moment. And when I did speak to the doctors, they said, "Well, you only really show one sign, which was like the 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 tight throat, but there was there wasn't any swelling or there wasn't a rash." what are kind of the main symptoms you potentially should look at before you administer the EpiPen? I don't regret doing it because in that moment, I honestly felt like I, I, I was struggling to breathe um, as well as well. I, I think another thing looking back, which might have helped has always been a, because I've not used this thing in 29 years, I've not used EpiPen in 29 years, is that anxiety around using it. But I do feel better knowing that if it ever felt like I did have a severe allergic reaction. I did have the highs or the, or the sore throat. Then I wouldn't hesitate. So in 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 some ways, I think it even though it it might have been a panic attack, but it's it's really tricky yeah. to say. Like it could it, have it, been. It, like, it, yeah. it, it might have been. But firstly, you unequivocally did the right thing. Yeah. Um. And the reason is is that it just doesn't matter if you weren't having an allergic reaction. 
adrenaline is safe. So there's no downside here. If you think you're having a baby, you know what I always say to my patients, if you're not sure if it's bad enough, that's the time to give it. Yeah. Not waiting until it's definitely bad enough because then you're already, the clock's already ticking and you probably should have given it earlier. Um, there's a little bit of an urban myth out there that if you take antihistamine, that somehow it prevents the development of your allergic reaction. It doesn't. All antihistamine does is provide you with symptomatic relief of mild symptoms that just makes you a little bit less itchy. If you're going to have a bad reaction, if you're having a bad reaction, there is zero value in taking antihistamines. You need to get on and give adrenaline. Oh, or at wow. least get yourself in a position that's really interesting because you always think it, it prevents yeah. it i think exactly yeah. i think that's a really and in fact we some years ago as part of the british society we sort of redesigned the emergency plans because people saw it as a linear thing you, you're having a reaction so give antihistamine and if that doesn't make you better give your adrenaline and that's not the way you should be thinking about it at all <clears throat> the right way to think about it is you accept you know if you realize you're having a reaction you then need to make an assessment in your own mind <clears throat> You then need to make an assessment in your own mind. Are you having a mild reaction? Is it just itchiness and, you know, hives around your mouth and that's it? In which case, yeah, take some antihistamine. You'll feel better for it and see how you go, but keep a close eye. Or are there any signs or symptoms suggestive that you might be having a more severe reaction? And that's basically anything to do with your breathing. So if you're coughing persistently, if you're finding you feel your throat is tightening up, if you think you're, you're, you're working harder with your breathing, if you feel your chest being tight, or any suggestion that your circulatory system's affected. So if you're feeling dizzy or a little bit confused or lethargic or um, that sense of impending doom, then get on and give your adrenaline and if you're not it sure felt if it's like bad doom. enough like it. i said i've never yeah. i've never had to use the epipen and it felt like doom the only the only issue is like there wasn't hives before yeah the, and that's not swelling. an absolute yeah. so um absolutely people will describe reactions where they'll get significant respiratory symptoms but no hives um sometimes there are hives but you just can't see them because they're they're under your jumper um, and, and, you know, I've got colleagues who have described, you know, reactions that look very much exclusively respiratory. But then when they're in recess and they they take the, 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 the patient's clothes off, you see they're covered in hives and it's like, ah, light bulb moment. This is anaphylaxis, not an asthma attack. So when I did use it, with, by the time, as soon as I used it straight away, like there was a massive sense of relief. Um, and I went back to the ambulance and they did tests and the oxygen levels was fine. Yeah. Obviously, it's hard for you to say, was it anaphylaxis or not? But yeah. what I did want to ask you the question, would I have recovered as fast as I did if it was So, So I think shot? the biggest clue that that probably was an allergic reaction that you know that, that this you were experiencing was the fact that it reversed very quickly with the adrenaline because that's what you would expect to happen. Whereas if it's a panic attack, it's it, you know, chances are you'd still have been panicked because the adrenaline sometimes gives you that sort of bit of a rush. Oh yeah, um, I felt could, that. Yeah, could, yeah, yeah. Um, could potentially could potentially sort of you know make that even worse. So it probably was. So, but I think regardless, I think if you you know again, if you're just not sure, use it because there's not really a downside of having used it beyond the fact that you're going to have to go and get another one at some point to replace it. Yeah, you know, deal with what you're faced with at the time, and if you're not sure use the adrenaline it's you know if you if, if you look at the studies around this there's no doubt that adrenaline is massively underused in anaphylaxis you know yeah. loads of anaphylaxis goes undertreated now on the one hand you should see the positive in that because people still get better you know the overwhelming majority of untreated anaphylaxis is still fine but it's a dramatically better experience all round yeah. if you've got adrenaline there's always a site around better. using it you know because i've never had to use it 
in my life and there's always that bit of anxiety i think from my parents as well when they was kind of when i had a severe allergic reaction i think there's moments where they potentially could have used it but when they got to the hospital there's like oh no i and i think that might have been an education thing it was always more like oh well he's here now i will we'll, we'll give him some medicine or like and there's always but anxiety i've always said to my mum now like oh my definitely use it like, like you said and it's so interesting that there's no actually harm to to using it You're like don't get me wrong, I felt the rush when I used it. Um, but that wears off after 20, 30 minutes anyway. Exactly. And um, I think sometimes it's easier, you know, I, I, sometimes in hospital, and remember, it's a very different context when you're all monitored up, surrounded by doctors, and everybody feels a lot more comfortable letting things <clears throat> ride a little bit because we know we have the means to get you better if, if we needed to. So <clears throat> sometimes... I think in that A&E setting, the threshold for giving adrenaline can be higher than it should be. And I think it's not a good example to patients to say, well, you know, let's just give you some some Ventolin, some Salbutamol and see how that wheeze goes rather than giving you adrenaline. And I don't really know why that happens, but you hear this story all the time. You know, in my mind, you know, you've acknowledged you're wheezy because of an allergic reaction. The right treatment for this is adrenaline first and salbutamol second. Now, in the community, nobody would argue, get on and give you adrenaline. But in a hospital setting, there's a temptation from the doctor to say, well, maybe it'll be easier. We'll just give you some, you know, give you a puff and see if you settle down. And then that gives you the wrong impression that that's okay to do that out in the community. It's yeah. not. And it's always best to use the EpiPen earlier on because if the, the breathing did get worse, then it might have been. A bit yeah, too late, so, yeah. So, yeah, well, I mean, you know, what, what, what the horrible, severe and fatal cases teach you is delaying is not a good idea. Um, allow, you're, you're just allowing it to sort of, you know, get more established. So the earlier you get in there, the quicker you divert it off that path. And the other thing to be clear about is if you're not better within five minutes, give your second one. Um, and if you've given the first one, make sure somebody has called for help. So I always say to patients, you know, if you're about to give your EpiPen, give the EpiPen first and call for help second if there's just you, because the help that you want is the adrenaline anyway. So give that first, then call for help. But if there's two of you, somebody's giving the, the adrenaline while the other person is calling for help. Yeah, that's what we did. And I think the only final question I wanted to kind of end onwards with EpiPen, if you are going to use the second one, use it in the opposite leg. And that's something which come out the Natasha kind of inquest. Uh, it's a studies in there's not really definitive evidence on that i mean we generally sort of say sort of more informally give it in the other leg the idea being is that um once you've given um adrenaline into one leg what it does it sort of tightens up the blood vessels so the blood supply is not quite so good to that area whereas you want it you want to give adrenaline to an area where the blood supply is going to be great because it gets distributed more quickly um so the guidance doesn't say that's the formal guideline doesn't say anything about using the other leg but um and, and i guess what what nobody wants to do is make this more complicated than it absolutely has to be because the more complicated you make this the more things to remember the less likely people are to get it right the important thing really is giving the second dose of adrenaline five minutes later that's far more important than where you give it um if you have the you know the, the presence of mind to remember to yourself oh i should give it in the other leg fantastic but giving it in the same leg is absolutely fine as well and there is no clear evidence that one is better than the other there's been no studies to compare the two yeah. i don't know how on earth you would do that study um that would give you any helpful results so i think it's helpful to be aware of but it shouldn't be a focus the really important bit is carrying the the, the adrenaline knowing how to use it knowing when to use it and knowing when to use it early enough and getting on with it and not being frightened to do so and you know just just being prepared to press the button as such um 
Can I ask you a question in regards to the EpiPen? Obviously, it used to be 10 seconds. Now it's three seconds. Yeah. When, when, when I did use it, even though I knew it was three seconds, I still kept it in for 10 seconds. Yeah. That's not going to make a difference. Oh, no, no, yeah. no. It, it, nothing's changed about the devices. Um, in reality, all the all the adrenaline liquid has gone in in, in probably a second. Um, but to be absolutely sure, they say hold for three, whereas they say hold for 10, but that was just longer than it needed to be. But can hold it there as long as you like it's gone in um and that's yeah. the important thing yeah yeah there, there was a nice study done in, in in the u.s where they got people who were and many people are anxious about using their adrenaline injectors and just got got them to give themselves an intramuscular injection into the leg um there aren't there aren't sadly there's not placebo sort of dummy yeah. adrenaline devices with needles in um for obvious reasons because you don't want to get them confused but just the act of giving themselves an injection realizing that it doesn't hurt that much no, it didn't. I didn't hear at a time. The adrenaline was was, was going so that's much. The, that's I didn't the dominant feel, feeling. Yeah. I did feel it when it got to the hospital. It felt like someone had punched me in the eye. You know, a bit of a dead leg. Yeah, but no, well, that, yeah. But that's, I mean, it's a needle. So I mean, yeah, you get that. Yeah. You got a little bruise in there, essentially, from from the injection. Yeah. But just giving themselves the injection made them feel much more likely I to feel do more it. Empowered. In, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They felt much more confident that in the future, were they to need it, they would get on and do it. Oh yeah. Whereas like, previously, they didn't. Even yeah. though I, I still question myself now. Like, was it a panic attack or? Like for me, it felt like doom at the time. Like, um, and I've never really experienced that before. So I'm glad I did it. But I think the benefits of doing it have outweighed yeah, any absolutely. negatives because I feel like now I feel more confident about it. So the other question I was going to regards in in regards to the EpiPen and the Emirate. The Emirate carries more adrenaline for um, adults. I think it's 0.5. Is it? I always carry the EpiPens because I prefer it sturdier. You know what I mean? I can chuck it in my bag. Like I, prefer, I just prefer the build of the EpiPen. Is it much difference? Am I doing myself a disservice by not carrying the Emirate, which has got more adrenaline? No, no, not really. I mean, interestingly, in the studies that look at the actual uptake of adrenaline after the injection, you get broadly the same uptake from a 300 EpiPen or Jex as you do from a 500 Emirate. And hence, there's not been a strong push about having the higher dose. I think what you'll find is that it very much depends on where you're being prescribed from, because in some areas, the GPs, um, the commissioners have a contract with Emirates, so you'll be given Emirates, and in others, they have a contract with EpiPens. So I'm not, so, so you know, I'm not, I'm not nervous about people carrying of your size carrying EpiPen 300. I think it's far greater issue and concern that the right people have got the EpiPens, that they're in date, that they know how to use them, that they carry them with them, that they know when to use them and that they actually do use them when they're meant to and then give a second dose five minutes later if they're if they're not clearly getting better. Those are of great concern and I think, you know, something that's come out of other inquests is people being given different adrenaline devices and then not trained how to use them because if you've been used to, you know, if, if you've been trained to use an EpiPen then, and you're just given an Emirate, chances are you won't get it right yeah. because they are different devices. And why is it, why is it like, some nurses don't actually show you how to use it. I'm not saying this for every practice, but there's some practice where I first time I got given Emirate, they just was like, "Oh, just watch a video." Well, online. They, they, that's they should be showing you how yeah. to use it. If you're prescribing something or dispensing something, yeah. you need to be able to show people how to use it. Yeah. Otherwise, well, firstly, it's a bit pointless, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it, you know, what, you know, if you don't know what you're doing with it, I think there's been a little bit of this sort of through COVID of just sort of saying, "We'll just look at it on YouTube." Yeah. Um, I think that said, you know. 
you know, going beyond that is incredibly important. If you've got them one way or the other, whether it's watching it on YouTube, going back into the pharmacist, going to see your GP, make sure you know how to use your device because you do not want to be working out how to use it when you're having an anaphylaxis. That's yeah. not the time. That's you time know, to get a YouTube exactly. tutorial. That's exactly. Yeah. For, you, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, yeah. And sort of scrabbling around trying to find instructions when you're feeling pretty awful yeah. is is you know be prepared yeah anyway thank you so much for coming on the podcast Pleasure. honestly absolutely appreciate it i know it's going to give so much value and like i said first time i've got a doctor on so yeah i was a bit anxious like because obviously you're so well educated and like you, you know so much but it's so interesting to kind of really get these like thoughts and i'm sure everyone else has got the, the same questions as well so it's, i really appreciate it having no i mean look it's, it's always a learning experience talking to patients you know i mean we, we've got as much to learn from our patients believe me there's plenty to learn um it's just very much two-way thing yeah. so thank you if anyone wants to kind of follow you on instagram we've got your handles or anything um, you want to share yeah <laughs> i'm embarrassed i don't know what my handle is i'm on instagram I think it's Dr. Adam Fox. Yeah, yeah. I'll share yeah. it on the, on, the, on, the, on the description for anyone who wants to find out more. But yeah, thank you again for coming up. Thank you for listening to this episode with Professor Adam Fox. If you do enjoy it, let me know on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever kind of social channels you use. And yeah, like I said, thanks again for listening. And make sure to tune in every Monday at 8am for the next episode of the Make and Take podcast.